This podcast is sponsored by Skylight Frame. Mother's Day is almost here. What are you getting her? Something that shows you care. Something that makes her feel loved. Something that won't stress you out. Something like the Skylight Frame. The Skylight Frame is the perfect gift. It's a touchscreen photo frame your whole family can upload photos to from wherever they are in the world. It's a way to share with her all the moments that matter. It sets up in seconds. You can even make sure that it's already loaded with photos when your mom opens her Mother's Day gift. And her Skylight Frame can hold thousands of the treasured photos you share. It's an easy, heartfelt way for mom to stay connected with those who matter most. It really is the perfect gift. Now, as a special Mother's Day offer for our listeners, Get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash easy. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash easy. Get 15% off your Mother's Day purchase now at skylightframe.com slash easy. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Katie's Crib, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. There is no such thing as perfect parenting. There just isn't. The reason over these years, you know, when I've written parenting books, I always include the ways I've messed up as a parent is because there's always room to reconnect after a rupture, you know, to make a repair. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Katie's Crib. Today's guest is truly is such a gift that we got him to come on to the podcast. He has written two of my favorite, most useful books on my bedside table. It's Dr. Dan Siegel. He wrote No Drama Discipline and The Whole Brain Child, and I use them both constantly. If you've never heard of them, don't walk, run to get them. I learned so much. We talk a lot about the power of showing up. We talk about development trauma and helpful mindfulness exercises that we can start with our young children now so that they can continue to practice such techniques into adulthood. Dr. Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He's also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, and the institute focuses on such topics as the development of mindsight, empathy, and integration of families and communities. Dr. Siegel is published for both professional and general audiences, and his work includes five New York Times bestsellers, including Aware, the Science and Practice of Presence, Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, and two of his bestsellers, The Whole Brainchild and No Drama Discipline, were co-authored with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. Thank you so much, Dr. Siegel, for making time and for coming on to Katie's Crip. I just want to tell you, I'm such a huge fan. I have read your books. I am a parent of two children and I'm trying to implement lots of your things. I've watched Google Talks and I've listened to you on Chelsea Handler's podcast. Oh, great. (laughs) First, for those listening who may not know you, just tell us a little bit about how you come to your parenting books through science and through interdisciplinary science. In Katie speak, it's like lots of different sciences coming together. 
right? Yeah. What I've been trying to do, being trained both as a physician and a scientist in becoming an educator uh, and also, you know, being a therapist, wanting to see if there was a way to combine all the different disciplines of science into one framework. So in my professional academic writing, you know, we have a whole series of books that I edit that other people write in this approach. So we have over 75 textbooks for professionals. And then I also write, you know, my own books a little bit in that series, but also for the general public, including parenting. That's called interpersonal neurobiology, which is a fancy term just meaning what if you went inside for the personal? What if you went in our relationship with the inter, so that's the interpersonal? And what if you look not just at the brain, but the whole way in which all the different systems were a part of the entire nervous system in the whole body, but then the systems of relationships we have with humanity and with nature. If you tried to understand those systems from a scientific point of view, how would that influence, for example, the way you approach parenting or how you would approach psychotherapy or, you know, how you might even approach the way we deal with the environment or racism or how we're approaching the pandemics that we have. So it's a really exciting moment to try to bring the research findings of science to practical application. Yes. It's sort of like instead of going to one doctor for one specific thing, what's great about you are sort of bringing lots of different things together mindfulness, psychotherapy, science, all of these things, like you were saying, to help us be better parents, (laughs) to raise a whole integrated brain child. Exactly. Well said. (laughs) (laughs) I, I put things in real Katie's crib terms. Now, um, why is it important to care about your child's brain and development as a toddler? And also for me, is my three and a half year old already screwed? Like, like, oh, God. I mean, are these the most sometimes I hear these are the most important years. If you haven't really done it before five or seven, you're you can fill in the blanks. Yeah. Talk to me about the toddler brain. Right. Well, first of all, thanks for the question. And, you know, I think for everyone listening, uh, we can all take a deep breath and say there is no such thing as perfect parenting. There just isn't. The reason over these years, you know, when I've written parenting books, I always include the ways I've messed up as a parent is because there's always room to reconnect after a rupture, you know, to make a repair. And in fact, not that you should try to make ruptures in your connection with your kid, but they happen inevitably even if you are, you know, expert in this area or write books in this area or whatever. And when my kids got old enough to read and reflect on what I was doing and I asked their permission and to make sure what I was writing was accurate, they both read this piece that I had written about some conflict the three of us had. And they said, well, listen, it's accurate, but what's wrong with you that you want to let the world know what a jerk you can be? (laughs) Great. Oh, what a relief. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'm putting it in there. They go, why would you do that? I said, I'm doing that because the story that you're saying is accurate is really about how we reconnected after I messed up. And people need to know that instead of aiming for something that's called perfection or just getting it right, you have a direction you aim for. So you're not just lost and you can be inspired by science, but not getting imprisoned by science. 
So even the word attachment, you know, I'm an attachment researcher. I'm trained through the National Institute of Mental Health, blah, 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 to study attachment. So what the research on attachment shows is that, first of all, human beings can have more than one attachment figure. But what that means is kids can have different attachment figures. That's number one. Number two, it also shows that you're asking about, you know, is your three and a half year old messed up? You know, is it these attachment experiences can be healed if there's real big ruptures in them any time in the lifespan? Earlier is better than later, but doing it is better than not doing it. Yeah. When you talk about attachment, secure versus insecure, I just want to make sure people understand what attachment is, what that means. Yeah. So there is a formal uh, approach to parenting called attachment parenting that, as far as I can tell, has nothing to do with attachment research. So I'm not talking about attachment parenting. So the word attachment can be used however you feel like using it. No one's got like an ownership of it. But in the field of psychology that studies child development, there's a branch of that called attachment theory and research. That's just what they use for their academic studies. That's what I'm trained in. And what we do is we study uh, parents and other caregivers and how they interact with children. One of my colleagues has been doing this in a study over 45 years in length, where they studied the families before the child was born, so during a pregnancy. And now those kids are in their mid-40s. In a nutshell, what we've learned from that attachment research is that there are these patterns in which we tend to fall, which include in the broadest categories, what's called secure attachment, which leads to resilience in a child. And that's in the United States, somewhere between 55 and 65% of kids with their primary caregiver have a secure attachment. That's great news. But for close to a third to a half, you know, we have non-secure attachment with their primary caregiver, which is what the research studies because you have many, a number of attachment figures. When you look at the non-secure forms, there are three kinds. One is avoidant, which is in about 20% of the population where basically there was emotional distance and the kid learns how to be prematurely autonomous, right? And that has all sorts of consequences in that person's adulthood and their romantic relationships. And then the second grouping, which is about 15% of the population, is ambivalent attachment where they got mixed messages. And so instead of the disconnection of the avoidantly attached kid with the primary caregiver, this one is kind of confused. Like, who are you? Who am I? I'm not sure. Do you love me enough? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Right. And the boundaries were sometimes not clear. Sometimes they were intruded upon. And then overlapping these three, secure and the two forms of non-secure, is the most concerning form, disorganized attachment. And these kids have the worst outcome where you are terrified of your caregiver. And so obviously this is an abuse and neglect, but even in more subtle forms where you may not be removed from the care of your uh, parent, but here you're still being terrified of the caregiver in various ways. And those kids develop what's called dissociation. So they have a fragmentation of their mind. Now it's very healable. It's very disturbing of their ability to regulate their own emotions or to engage in mutually rewarding relationships with others. So I've worked with, you know, adults who bring their obviously older parents in. Talk about a rupture a long time ago or something like that. That's right. And some of the most amazing healing has happened, you know, when the parents are in their 60s or 70s and they come in and the child is in her 30s or 40s 
And then we do the work. And it's amazing that the healing, the reconnecting, the becoming whole is what healing means. You know, really requires a kind of kindness and vulnerability that allow to heal from ruptures. It doesn't always happen. Not all parents are up for that. So sometimes you as an individual need to make sense of your own life. And Mary Hartzell, my daughter's preschool director, and I wrote a book called Parenting from the Inside Out. Yeah, you did. And and we can talk about that. But that inside out approach basically says you're going to heal yourself, even if your parents don't cooperate or even if they're not still alive. So if you've had an avoidant background, you can move towards security. If you've had an ambivalent background, you can move towards security. And if you've had a disorganized one, you can move towards these various forms of non-secure attachment, but even security. So the great news is that if you're listening, you can change. And, you know, the Mindsight book I wrote, you know, or Parenting from the Inside Out, give you the pathways to change. Can you give me an example of a big rupture versus a little rupture? Just so I have like a sort of framework. A rupture would be obviously like a divorce or like uh, moving out of parent. I mean, huge things, right? Yeah. So let's just look at the science of that. There is a term called developmental trauma that usually means abuse of some sort or neglect. And the neglect can be severe emotional neglect or severe physical neglect. And obviously, the abuse can run the range of sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, where there's something very negative that's present rather than the absence of something positive that's needed in neglect and abuse. These forms of developmental trauma, there's basically the experience of a child being terrified of something being created by the attachment figure which means the parent usually, but it can be other attachment figures. Now, you know, field that I'm a part of, attachment research shows is that when a child feels terrified of the attachment figure, it creates a kind of bind inside their own brain, a double you know, thing going on. One thing is that the deepest part of their brain says, oh my gosh, I'm being terrified. Let me get away from the terror. But another part of my brain, a little bit higher up in the brain, says, I'm a mammal. And when I'm in a state of terror, where I go is to my attachment figure to be protected, because that's one of the main things attachment is all about is safety. So here's the difficult situation. It's called fear without solution. It's a biological paradox. If the attachment figure is causing the state of terror, then one part of the brain says, get away from that source of terror. The other part says, go toward the attachment figure, who is the source of terror. So your mind fragments. That's the most extreme. Now, it doesn't have to be abuse and neglect. So this is where people should know about it. Um, It can be an example of flipping your lid as a parent, where you're not abusive in terms of neglect or physical abuse. It's not developmental trauma, but it is still terrifying to your kid. So this is now a little step down. And yet, it can be very toxic to a child, even if you don't want to use the word trauma. And it could fall into the category of adverse childhood experiences, which is what you're talking about. In my household, I have a very, very dynamic three and a half year old toddler boy who really enjoys If you tell him to do something, he's not going to do it and enjoys that. It's like wild. And it's perfect for me because, good Lord, we couldn't be more opposite. So I'm a hippie 
in my sort of parenting style. And it was quick to realize that worked for the first two, two and a half years with my son. And now it really doesn't. Anyway, my husband has really more of the disciplinarian if you would go with a good cop, bad cop situation. Now, when you use the word disciplinarian, what do you mean? Like he was better at following through. Like we have a long leash, but if it's something where someone's going to get hurt or we have a newborn three and a half month old and one time he stepped on her head on purpose and it was like, okay, and now you're going to your room and you have to think about what you've done and violence is never tolerated and we don't touch our friends' bodies this way and especially our family members and blah, blah, blah. My husband is better at that than me in just like you're going to your room right now. I'm so angry at you. This is unacceptable. And guess what? Hanukkah's canceled. Christmas is canceled. <laughs> Dessert is canceled. TV is canceled. And then he goes to his room and it was very upsetting and he was very sad and it was the most trouble he's ever gotten. And rightfully so. He, he literally looked me in the eye and stomped on his newborn sister's head. But my son is more afraid of my husband than he is me. Like, is this a rupture? Because Adam's like, I don't want to be the bad cop all the time. But our son is not someone that listens easily with being told what to do. And I don't know if it's the age. I don't know if it's his spirit. I have no idea. I've only met him three and a half years ago. This podcast for everyone has just literally become my session with my son. You're welcome, everyone. Don't worry. We'll get back on topic in one <laughs> second. Here's the thing. Everyone listening should just take a deep breath and reflect that every kid is different. They have, you know, something called a temperament. And that's kind of their inborn proclivities that are innate. They are not learned. And they're slightly modifiable, but not that much. Temperament is very real. Some of it is genetically related, but in any event, it's innate, not learned, right? So the next thing that we'll talk about is a, a attachment. You know, how do the relationships you have with your caregivers, you know, within the family setting influence how you work through your way of being in the world to develop what's simply called personality. When I think about my two kids, you know, they had very different temperaments. So if you thought you were doing a strategy that worked for the older one and then tried on the younger one whose temper was totally different, it just wouldn't work. So you can have a broad approach to attachment, like you want to develop secure attachment, but then there are absolutely modifications one needs to make depending on the temperament of the kid. So let's talk about Adam's, you know, being stern. Talk about the brain a little bit. As the brain is developing, let's say from nine to 12 months, which is the time when a kid begins to crawl, um, the brain of that child has got to learn to develop these basically like a break, you know, to, to, to shut down behavior. And so what you see then in this time period is parents start saying no, 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 a lot. The way you say no is what's important, right? So if you say no, 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 and nothing happens, the kids' inhibitory circuits are not going to develop, right? And so they're just going to push you and push you and push you until you just, you, you think you're going to lose your mind. You're using the word stern for Adam. So being able to be clear about it. I said no, you know, like this, you know, it may make your kid frustrated. It may make them really pissed off. But it's not terrifying them. Now, inhibiting that may take a stern uh, boundary that if you can't create it, Adam can create it. Oh, no, I've gotten good. It's a steep learning curve, but I'm here. <laughs> yeah. OK, good. So because when there's dangerous things going on like that, that can be harmful. Sometimes you have to say no, you know, and 
But there's no such thing as perfect parenting. Ruptures happen. A kid, their job is to push against the boundaries. And then depending on your own childhood and your own temperament, you know, you're going to cave in in various ways. Here's an example where my kids were older than your son is at that time. But I had a nine at the time, my daughter and our son was 14. And they went to the movies, right? I, I took my daughter to a movie and my son wanted to go to a movie with his friends. We picked up her brother and we were walking by this crepe store near where we live. And my son said, he's hungry. I said, oh, do you want a crepe? And he said, yeah, I love crepe. And then I asked his sister, do you want a crepe? She goes, I'm not hungry. I said, fine. You know, so we went in, he got a crepe. And then she said to him, can I have a taste of your crepe? He goes, no. And he's eating and eating it and smells are coming from the scrape shop. She goes, can I have a little bit? He goes, okay, okay. And, again, and he cuts her off that edge that's like really burnt and tasteless. And so hands it to her on the, his fork. She goes, that's too small. Oh, hilarious. And he goes, forget it. And I'm just fuming inside. Like I've done a horrible job teaching him to be a sharer and he's selfish and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. We get in the car, you know, and I slam the door shut and he goes, what's wrong with you? What's wrong? I said, well, you didn't share the crepe. And he goes, yeah, because she didn't want one and I was hungry. I said, well, what if this is one of those friends, you know, that you went to the movies with? He goes, I'd give them half my crepe. (laughs) So I go, well, why wouldn't you give your sister one? He goes, she's not my friend. Yeah. And then I exploded. Luckily, my wife was home and she intervenes when we get, we all three of us get home. Mm -hmm. And then my system is starting to slowly calm down. And so his sister and I go for rollerblading uh, out on the street. And she says to me, she goes, Dad, what was going on? Why? Why did you get so angry? I said, oh, you know, uh, because he didn't share the crepe with you. She goes, I can handle myself. What was happening? I said, oh, I guess if I thought about it, you know, I'm a younger child, just like you're the younger sibling, because my brother was really mean to me. And if your brother was ever mean to you, I was never going to let that happen to if I ever had kids. And so I was trying to, I guess, work through the way my parents never protected me. So I was trying to protect you. And since she looks at me, she goes, this is your own garbage. She goes, why don't you work this out on your own time? (laughs) (laughs) And that's parenting. To talk about this crepes of wrath business, that was the rupture and, and then figuring it out. But the repair happened when she and I got back from the rollerblading thing. We had a family meeting and and I apologized to my son for having, you know, flipped my lid for just asserting his right to eat his crepe by himself. And I was able to talk about, you know, to him about what the experience was like. And then it, with since his mother didn't watch all this. I asked him if he wanted to, you know, share what the experience was like. And then he imitated me and he did a really good job of how ridiculous I was. Right. So so inside of me, I had to be ready in terms of the repair process. And we're the older, more experienced, wiser, hopefully ones than our kids. So it's our responsibility to make the repair. Right. Ah, That's so important. Yeah, we need to understand that these are vulnerable places in us. So whatever issues I have with my brother being, you know, protected by my parents and me not being protected and all this kind of stuff, that's not for me to work out with my kids, but it's to to work it out with them that I did something pretty scary 
cursing, slamming the slamming the door. Oh, it was terrible. I mean, and so I had to own that and apologize for that instead of saying, yeah, but you made me do it because you wouldn't share and I don't like selfish kids. You know, I could, you could do that. You could go that route, sure. But that's really the opposite of repair. This podcast is sponsored by Skylight Frame. Mother's Day is almost here. What are you getting her? Something that shows you care. Something that makes her feel loved. Something that won't stress you out. Something like the Skylight Frame. The Skylight Frame is the perfect gift. It's a touchscreen photo frame your whole family can upload photos to from wherever they are in the world. It's a way to share with her all the moments that matter. It sets up in seconds. You can even make sure that it's already loaded with photos when your mom opens her Mother's Day gift. And her Skylight Frame can hold thousands of the treasured photos you share. It's an easy, heartfelt way for mom to stay connected with those who matter most. It really is the perfect gift. Now, as a special Mother's Day offer for our listeners, Get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash easy. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash easy. Get 15% off your Mother's Day purchase now at skylightframe.com slash easy. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. I think I was watching, maybe it was your Google talk, but so much about we're talking about these repairs and ruptures. If you do a lot of the repairing of your own life, it's so helpful to you as a parent because a lot of times nothing shows you your weaknesses (laughs) more. And I sit here and I see my other friend's kids who listen when they're asked once. They're not boundary pushers. That's not what they, their kids are doing something else. You know what I mean? Like I was just at a swim class. Uh, My son's learning to swim and my son has gotten in really big fat trouble every swim class because he's splashing all the other kids in the face and making them cry. (laughs) Okay, and the kid who's crying is afraid of the water and my son senses that he's afraid of the water. And so he's instigating and, and splashing and things like that. I'm the mom freaking out that my kid is making other kids cry, but my kid is like animal beast in the water, loves nothing more than diving off the side. And today's the graduation from swim class and he's showing off everyone. He's such a good swimmer. The mom of the shy boy who is crying is a really, really tough mom. And she's having such a hard time that her son is struggling in the water and Mm. I'm looking at each other and I'm like, oh my God, like really? 
in another life, should we, we, we would switch and we would both be like not having on this journey, learning whatever the hell it is that we're learning. Yeah. Well, they definitely teach us, you know, there's something called reflective dialogues, which is a dialogue is a conversation. Reflection means to look inward. And there are three kinds of maps that the brain is able to make. It's called a mind sight or seeing the mind, mindset map of oneself a mindset map of someone else. So it's a you map. So there's a me map, a you map, and a we map. So ideally for your son, whether it's going to happen soon or later, if you don't mind me giving you reflections on this, you know, he needs to develop the mindset abilities to be able to make a map of himself. I really feel like splashing these kids because I'm so good and I want to show my strength. And then he does not do it. So a mindset map would say, I've got the urge but I'm not going to allow the impulse to turn into action. And, you know, some people call that self-control. And and that's going to be something, yeah, he needs to learn, but it's going to require awareness. That's number one. A you map would be where he makes a map of that kid who's shy and he realizes this kid is already having a hard time with water. So for me to splash him in the face is really mean. And I don't want to be a mean person. Or if I do want to be a mean person, if I like hurting people, I need some help. And then there's what's called a, a we map, right? Like I want to be a part of this class where I'm a welcome member of this group. And that's a we map, right? So we learn these mindset maps in our homes. But you and Adam, you can sit down with your kids. I mean, you're three month old is a little young for this, but where you start talking about, okay, let's talk about today. Let's talk about, you know, swim class being over. And uh, you splashing kids in the face. I'm not mad. You say it's his mom. Um, but I'm, I, I want to talk about what you think that kid's experience was to be scared of the water. You know that. And then you're splashing him in the face. This is so helpful. I want to sit and have this like lovely conversation with him and not put too much pressure on it. Exactly. And when you're feeling really centered and calm and can be, you know, open to whatever it is. And you can remember, Katie, that you can have this cold state, curious, open, accepting and loving. C-O-A-L is just something to remember. That's one of the best definitions of mindful. So when you mindfully have this conversation with him, Katie, you bring curiosity. I'm really curious about him. You're open to whatever he says. Well, I wanted him to feel bad. You don't get angry about that. You accept that's what he said. And you bring a loving stance and then you're going to explore it, right? So when we bring a cold kind of presence to our interactions as parents, what's great about that is that, you know, you come from a place that you're being a role model for him too, of how he can be that way also in life. I love Cole. And you don't think a three and a half year old, you think it's, this is like great to be starting this young. Oh my God. Yes. Okay, good. (laughs) Actually, this is a great example. There's a research study which looked at deaf kids, right? And they were around your son's age, three and a half, four, and they divided them into two groups. One group had these mindset abilities where they knew about emotions and their impact on us. They knew about how memory works. These are three and a half year olds, four year olds. So they had these mindset skills, right? The other half of this group of deaf kids didn't have those skills of insight into one's own inner life or the inner life of others. That's what mindset means, right? So then they studied these and they found that one of the groups that had the mindset abilities versus the ones that didn't have the mindset abilities divided up really neatly into one had parents who were deaf at birth 
And the other had hearing parents who then found themselves with a deaf kid. Oh, my God. Now, which group do you think is which? It turns out that the deaf kids who were born to parents who were deaf, who knew how to do American Sign Language, they had perfectly intact development of mind sight abilities. Whereas the ones who were deaf, who had parents who could barely communicate with them. So like, give you an example, if a kid fell down, if that parent was a deaf parent who knew how to sign in a sophisticated way, they could have a reflective dialogue using sign language and say, that must have been so scary for you to have your tricycle hit the stone. I'm so sorry. That was so scary. Here, come here. Let me pick you up and help you. Whereas the other one just says, get up. So parents who don't do reflective dialogues have kids who just are external looking. They don't look inward either in their own life or the life of others. So what you want to do, especially with someone with a temperament like your kid's temperament, is you want to give them mindset skills. The ability basically to make a map of the mind inside myself, if I'm your son, so I know what am I feeling? What am I thinking? Where's my attention going? What's my intention? How do I get a sense of what my impulse is for my behavior? That's all called, let's just put under the word insight. And amazingly, we all have feelings and thoughts and impulses, but not everybody has insight, right? So it's a way of like making a map of my own interiority, right? We do a lot of this. And I actually, you know, I have, I'm having such memories in this conversation of the times that I got in trouble, whatever that's the word you want to use, growing up in my household and got sent to my room to think about what I had done. They always ended with my dad sitting at the edge of my bed and talking about what had happened and how I feel. And he would always end up crying. My dad's super emotional, dude. <laughs> and like he would always end up crying and being like, you know, I love you and it's OK. And we let's just talk, you know, and we always just had like a nice talk about what it was that had happened. And I'm just looking back on that and being like, my parents were really good about that. Everybody needs these mindset skills. It sounds like your parents gave you. That's exactly what it is. So that's the insight piece. The second is, you know, empathy. So it's your own self-awareness, the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, mm -hmm. and then the ability for the we map, which is, and where does this fall in society, in, in the world? In the world, right. And you could call that compassion if you want, or kindness, where you say there's a relationality between me and that person. And so the way I'm going to act in terms of the we is to bring kindness into the world. And the we map is really saying, okay, I'm a part of something larger than just my body. I'm a part of relations with people and the planet. So that would include, you know, how you treat nature, how you treat pets, how you treat the trees around you. So this is what mindset involves. And the great news about doing it, understanding this as a parent, is you can have kind of a mindset strategy where you say, my kid's three and a half now. Really, what I'm aiming for is when he's 18 and he's getting ready to launch. So I don't have to do everything when he's three and a half. Oh, so huge. This podcast is sponsored by Skylight Frame. Mother's Day is almost here. What are you getting her? Something that shows you care. Something that makes her feel loved. Something that won't stress you out. Something like the Skylight Frame. 
The Skylight Frame is the perfect gift. It's a touchscreen photo frame your whole family can upload photos to, from wherever they are in the world. It's a way to share with her all the moments that matter. It sets up in seconds. You can even make sure that it's already loaded with photos when your mom opens her Mother's Day gift. And her Skylight Frame can hold thousands of the treasured photos you share. It's an easy, heartfelt way for mom to stay connected with those who matter most. It really is the perfect gift. Now, as a special Mother's Day offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash easy. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash easy. Get 15% off your Mother's Day purchase now at skylightframe.com slash easy. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. I'm all about when your child has done something and and making sure you're coming from a stern boundary, but regulated place. Like, I I think if you're flipping your fucking lid, I personally remove myself from the situation, let's say. And for like five, 10 minutes until I've like feel like I'm not coming at it from like a like my past, like you had said. And then when I come at it from a regulated place. We've been trying lots of things like you have to go to your room. We're going to take away this toy because you used it to hit the dog or whatever it is. I'm basically just trying them all (laughs) because I'm trying. I'm learning as I go. What are any suggestions in the discipline lanes? So the word discipline, it's important to remember as a parent means to teach doesn't mean to punish. You know, when Tina and I wrote the book, No Drama Discipline, our main goal is to tell parents. You know, we misinterpreted the word discipline to be, I need to punish, right? So that's the first thing to say. So then you can say, well, okay, what am I trying to teach my child? Well, you're trying to teach him the skills of self-regulation, to put it really simply. And, you know, there's wonderful research from Adele Diamond that shows that, you know, self-regulation is really going to be learned like between three and nine, you know, and the parts of the brain that help curb impulses will be developed now. So he's just at the beginning of this. So you say, okay, well, then I've got a good, you know, six years to be working on this project. Great. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is the moment where these mindset skills you will teach of self-awareness and empathy and the WeMap will help him see, I have feelings and I have an impulse. And just because I have an impulse, like to splash someone, you know, or hit the dog with the toy or step on my sister with my foot, I can actually be so empowered as even though the impulse is there, the action does not happen. It's not that you always say yes, hardly. 
is that you identify the feeling of a child. And once you connect like that, you can redirect their behavior. You know, I was like, you really feel the need to hit. Okay, you can, you're allowed to hit the couch. You're allowed to hit the floor, but you can never hit a person and you can never hit an animal, period. And now after a while of that not working for a good year, it got to the point where I was like, if you hit someone one more time, you don't get this, you know, and that's when it works. Or if you hit one more time, you, you have to, we're going to have to start talking about consequences and things. And that worked. Right. And, and every kid is different. Is there ever a time where like throwing your kid in the room and closing the door is like allowed? Throwing your kid in the room and closing the door. Well, I wouldn't use the phrase throwing your kid in the room. Yeah, throw is not good. Escorting them. Listen, timeouts are a very interesting issue. The way they've been researched shows that they work, but they're never done in anger. They're always done where the child is told, before an incident has happened, if something happens that is a problem in how behavior is going, I'm going to give you what I'm going to call a timeout. And what that means is you're going to take five minutes and you are going to um, have a break from being interacting with the family. And then as you do that, I want you to think about what's going on. Then in five minutes, you can come back with the family. What parents tend to do in real life, unlike what the researchers very appropriately suggested, parents have taken that term time out and they mean they're going to punish them by removing them from social connection, sometimes for half an hour, an hour. There is a place for timeouts done the way researchers suggesting it. But I don't think there's a place for using timeouts as a punishment. It's an opportunity to inspire, to motivate, sure, but not to banish for an hour in social isolation. That is really not what they were ever intended for by the researchers. So if you want to follow the research protocol, go for it. But don't use that as a way to shirk your parenting responsibilities of teaching skills just because you're fed up and now you're going to, as you say, throw your kid in their room. No, that's not okay is what I would say. Yeah. In my household, the biggest boundary I can set with my son is taking away his most favorite thing that he never gets, which is the television. And that's how he knows shit has hit the fan. And you know what else works on my son? This is so lame. I cannot believe I have turned into this mother. I'm the one, two, three mom. And I think it's because it gives him a second to control that impulse, if that makes sense. It gives him a minute. Is that bad? <laughs> No, I mean, you know, what's beautiful about that, Katie, is that you are showing him that he can become aware that it's his decision, that he can feel, oh, I can hit the dog again. But, you know, I really love television. So I am choosing to actually not do it. And he's learning from that way you're doing it, that he actually has a, an option that is in his control. I try to always give in options because this kid is a negotiating autonomous being. Yeah. You're teaching him the skill of self-regulation, you know, which is important to do. And listen, this is going to be over the next few years. You want to take a deep breath and just realize it doesn't mean he's going to wait till then. But you have this time, especially in the next couple of years, his inhibitory circuits from the higher part of his brain to the lower part of his brain are developing. And the way you come to say no in a way that invites him to say, oh, I see, I have an impulse. I'm not going to act on it is actually going to grow those inhibitory 
fibers from the higher parts to the lower parts of his brain. And that's what self-regulation is dependent on. And that's a skill you're going to give to him. The other thing I do is how I got, I was like, if you hit one person at this party, we're leaving. <laughs> so just know that. And he did. And I, then I, the fucked up part is that I have to follow through. Cause I, <laughs> it's like, he did it. And I was like, you hit him in the face with a stick. So we're going to leave the party. And he's screaming. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And I, I'm like, I know you don't want to leave, but I told you that if you hit someone, we have to leave the party. Good. And you follow through with it. And how did the next party go? Much better. He didn't do it. There you go. But then he'll forget and it could happen again. That's a great example of teaching him the skills of self-regulation. This is exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I can't like, guys, just Google Dr. Dan Siegel, get all the books. I'll have to have you on again because we're moms and we can't listen to podcasts that are more than an hour. We don't have time for that. But this has um, been so, so, so helpful. Thank you so much for being on Katie's Crib. You're welcome. Thank you, Katie. Can you believe this is the kid that God she gave me? It's <laughs> perfect. It's great for you. Yes, exactly. What an opportunity to learn. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope you got a lot out of it. I know I did. I want to hear from you guys. What are topics you want to discuss? Guests that you want to have on? I'm always open to hearing your thoughts. You can email me at katiescrib at shondaland.com. Katie's Crib is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then, fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.